You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together. We turn this afternoon, first of all, to Romans chapter 12, 1 to 13. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Then we turn to the next chapter, beginning at verse 11. And do this, understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses and summarizes this in the 32nd Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image, so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for all his benefits, and he may be praised by us. Further, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith, by its fruits, and that by our godly walk of life we may win our neighbors for Christ. 
Well, the congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we have seen it often above Lord's Day 32. There is a certain expression, and it is there in bold black capital letters. It's called Our Thankfulness. Not only have we seen it there often, but we also know what it means. Because you see, thankfulness is not a difficult concept to understand or to grasp. We know it's all about an attitude, a positive kind of attitude. It's about a frame of mind in which you see, count, and embrace blessings, gifts, and benefits. And along with that, it's about expressing appreciation in words as well as deeds. So thankfulness is something that is readily seen and readily understood as well. But does that make it always easy? Well, not if the miracle that our Lord Jesus Christ tells in Luke 17 is any indication. For in Luke 17, we have that miracle of the ten lepers. And you may remember the Lord Jesus Christ heals all of them. He removes what was surely one of the most dreaded of known diseases at that time. He transforms the lives of each and every one of these ten men. And we would say, great stuff. Wonderful news. An ample reason for thankfulness as well. You would think so, but just how many of these ten men who have been healed come back later on? Thank the Lord Jesus. Do all ten of them troop back? Do eight of them? Six, five, three? No, beloved, only one. One single, solitary, measly leper comes back. Throws himself at the feet of the Lord Jesus and gives him thanks. And that's all. And not only is that all, but notice who is this one lonely leper? Scripture says in verse 16, he is a Samaritan. And you know what that means? That means he's of the inferior, second class kind of people. Samaritans don't count. But there's no account man is the only one who comes back to praise our Lord. Well, what does that tell you? Well, surely it must tell us that while thankfulness is a popular word, and while thankfulness is an easily understood concept, it's not so easy to implement. If the miracle of the ten lepers is a statistical miracle as well, then really only one out of ten people who are on the receiving end of God's gifts are really thankful. One in ten, not exactly the best numbers in the world. 
And you know, in light of that common kind of human failing, it's, it's good that we have Lord's Day 32 in our Heidelberg Catechism. For what it does is remind us about the need not simply to see the Word and to know it, but above all about the call to live it. And what's also good here is that while we have one Lord's Day that reminds us about the need to be thankful, we have another 20 Lord's Days coming up that show us exactly and precisely how we can live thankful lives every day. And so let's proceed this afternoon to the call and get ready to live the thankful life. I preach to you on the following theme. Why bother with good works or with thankfulness? And we're going to see there are here some great reasons, some great instruments, as well as some great benefits. So great reasons, great instruments, great benefits. My beloved, tomorrow evening some... Young people in this congregation will appear before the elders of the church with a view to their request to profess their faith. And of course, this makes them nervous. You can ask them. It makes me kind of nervous as well. And it also causes them to ask me for hints as well as pointers. So what do I tell them? Of course, I tell them, study hard, know your stuff. I tell them to pray, to relax, take a deep breath, get a grip on their nerves. And in addition, I tell them to listen very carefully to the questions, the kind of questions that come their way. They're supposed to listen carefully to my questions as well as to the questions of the elders. They're supposed to try to understand what we're all getting at. And don't assume that a question just has to be deep or a question is necessarily tricky. And at the same time, realize that sometimes the answer is already in the question. Sometimes a question is a dead giveaway. And you know, I would say the same thing applies here in question 86 of the Catechism. The answer, or at least a part of it, is already in the question. For look, what is really the question here? It is, why must we yet do good works? But yet that's not all that's in this question. You notice there's also a kind of preamble that comes before it. And it are the words, since we have been delivered from our misery by grace, alone through Christ, without any merit of our own, why? So why must we do good works? The question already says that the first thing has everything to do with our deliverance. That as Christians, we are a delivered people. We are a freed people, a a redeemed people. And that alone is a reason, a great reason for doing good and being thankful to God. 
You know, in some ways, it should remind you of the Israelites of old. Because really, if you read the pages of the Old Testament, the one thing that really dominates there is the fact of the exodus. For centuries, the people of Israel lived in Egypt. And toward the end of their stay in the land of Egypt, things became more and more difficult. A place that had begun as a land of refuge became in time a land of oppression. And every time we read the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, we are reminded that they came out of the setting of the land of slavery and the house of bondage. Egypt was a most terrible place, especially in those last years. Then, of course, the scripture comes along and the scripture says, but then God intervened with an, with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. He delivered his people plague after plague, judgment after judgment descended on Egypt. The stubborn Pharaoh was brought to his knees. The proud and powerful nation lost all of its pride and power. An enslaved people was allowed to leave and make its way to a land of its own. God did what no one else was able to do. He set his people free. Yes, and that that wonderful freedom, that glorious deliverance becomes Israel's first great reason For thankfulness. But you know, not just theirs, but also ours. Think about it. Were we in the past not also a people living in bondage and slavery? You may recall that the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in transgressions and sins following the ruler of the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature. You may have thought the Israelites are far gone. But I have more news for you. There is a sense in which all of us were in an even deeper pit and in a far more precarious situation. And what happened? It was God who intervened. He intervened with the sending of his son. He made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgression. God rescued and delivered us. And so we too have a great rescue to celebrate. We too are the objects of a mighty deliverance. We too have every reason to be thankful. But then if deliverance is the first reason... We can, together with the Israelites, say that grace constitutes the second reason. 
You know, question 86 also says, since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone, without any merit of our own. Why did God rescue the children of Jacob? Why did he bring them out of Egypt? Was it because they were so special, so beautiful, so noble, so bright, so full of potential? If you thought so, you should read the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says over and over in one form or another, it's it's not because of your righteousness or your integrity or your smarts or your looks that you were brought out so that you could take possession of a new land. And you know the same applies to us. If you think that God delivered you because you're so great, then you need to remember what the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians about God's choosing of them. He says, not many of you are wise. Not many of you are influential. Not many of you were royalty. But most of you were foolish and weak, lowly, despised. In the words of the Catechism, we didn't have any merits of our own, only warts and blemishes, hang-ups, misdeeds, and sins. So why in the world does God deliver us? Folks, it's, it's grace. And only grace, it's pure, unadulterated grace. In other words, the basis and the reason is not in us. Because we've long ago disqualified ourselves. It can only be found in God. And in His wonderful, unmerited love and favor. Toward us. Now that's what I would call another great reason for thankfulness and an incentive for doing good works. You see, together, deliverance and grace are more than sufficient reasons for us to turn to God and to say, Lord, we owe you big time. Here's my life. Take it. Use it. Mold it. According to your will. And of course, he does. But how does he do so? Well, you'll notice in this part of the catechism, paraphrasing, summarizing the scriptures, that God uses two great instruments, and the first is his son. Notice how answer 86 begins, because Christ. So to the question, why must we yet do good works? The answer is, because Christ. And you know, in a way, 
That really does say it all, doesn't it? In a way, nothing more needs to be said than that Christ alone is a sufficient reason to spur us on to a life of good works. Has anyone else done more for us? Has anyone else loved us more? Has anyone else given us so much of himself? Who can compare to Christ and what he gives to us? You know, the catechism drives this point home very simply by adding the words, having redeemed us by his blood. And that's, of course, to underline that he gave his life for us. He, he paid our ransom. He died on the cross for us. He satisfied God's wrath for us. He bore the curse for us. And isn't that enough? But you'll notice there's more. Indeed, Christ does more. While he's the one who redeems us for good works, he's also the one who renews us in his own image. In order that we can do good works. And how does he change us into his image? How does he renew us? How does he equip us? Well, notice he does it very simply by means of the Holy Spirit. If he is the first instrument, then the Holy Spirit is the second instrument enabling us to live thankful lives. Lives full of good works. Our Lord Jesus says, the Father will send the Spirit in his name. And he adds that when the Spirit comes, he will teach us all things, all the necessary things, that he will remind us of the words of the Lord Jesus, that he will guide us into all the truths, that he will literally transform and change our lives, our hearts, our minds, and our spirits. And that he will even take up his dwelling in us. But beloved, what we need to realize is that no, there is no way that any of us can do any of these good works without these so-called instruments, without the redeeming work of Christ and without the renewing power of the Holy Spirit. God the Father has given us both Because we need both. We need his son. And we need his spirit. But then, of course, you might also ask, need them for what? Why does the father bother? Why does he send us his son? Why does he give us of his spirit? What does he hope to achieve? What are the benefits here? Well, look again, the catechism is a good guide. The catechism says the first benefit has everything to do with God. Because then he gets to be praised. He gets to be adored. He gets to be magnified and to be glorified. And that's something that he deserves all along. Who else has made the heavens and the earth as well as all of the created realm? 
Remember the majestic opening words of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hands. Creation is the theater of His glory. And then there is man. Why were we made? We were made ultimately to bring praise and glory to God. We were not made to have fun. We were not made for our own pleasure. We were made by the Father, for the Father. And you know, the Psalter is, is full of this. Psalm, Psalm 9, for example. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. Psalm 16, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. The Lord lives, praise be to my rock, exalted be God, my Savior. Psalm 21, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your might. And psalm after psalm after psalm, And that's why we sing them so much. The psalmist heaps up praises to God. Because he knows that's what God deserves. That's his holy due. Oh, and how well our Lord Jesus Christ understood this too. If you turn, for example, to John 17 and to what is called the high priestly prayer. And if you look, for example, at the first part of that prayer, the verses 1 to 4, you you catch a glimpse there as well as in the rest of this prayer about just how the Lord Jesus Christ himself prayed. And notice the first thing, the very first thing on his prayer agenda is glory. Glory to God. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. You can hear in that that our Lord Jesus Christ's one and overriding concern is to bring glory to his Father. The glory that the angels sang about in the fields of Ephesus is the glory that Jesus Christ is intent on bringing to God the Father and laying at his feet. And so, beloved, God the Father deserves our praise. He should reserve it or receive it from all of creation. And from all peoples everywhere, he should receive it from you and I. He should also, in due time, receive it from Haley, who was baptized here this afternoon. We've all been made for his praise. And it's good to remember that. It's also good to have that challenge us. 
For surely in all of this, there is also what you might say, a calling for us to inspect our lives and to ask ourselves the searching question, what am I doing to bring praise to God? Is that something you ever ask yourself? When was the last time that you ended your day by asking, what did I do today that brought praise to my God and Father? In what way did I enlarge His name? In what way did I add to His glory? So, beloved, the first great benefit of doing good works, the first great beneficiary is God. The second is you and I, us. Because this also has everything to do with us and with our faith. In this regard, the Catechism says that another byproduct of good uh, works is that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits. What does that mean? Well, the clue may be in the word fruits. Do you have any fruit trees in your yard? Are they any good? How can you tell whether or not they're good? Of course, the answer is by their fruit. Good trees... Bear good fruit. Bad or useless trees bear no fruit. But the same applies to us as believers. As I said, we've been redeemed by Christ, renewed by the Spirit, so that we might not just praise God, but also bear fruit for God. And you know as well as I that Jesus likens himself to a vine and his believers to branches. And then he adds, no branch can bear fruit unless you remain in me. And then he adds, and if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And as well he says, this is to my Father's glory, that you may bear much fruit, thereby showing yourselves, proving yourselves to be my disciples. So what do we have here? We have the plain and the simple teaching that the proof of our discipleship is connected to our fruit-bearing. If there is no fruit growing in your life, there's something seriously wrong. If there is fruit growing in your life, there's something gloriously right. By your fruit, you shall be known. And not only that, but by your fruit you will also know yourself. 
We shall know ourselves to be the real, true, genuine articles. Because by our, our fruit, we gain assurance and confidence and certainty. You know, when our lives grow even a little of, of that holiness and godliness, that love and peace, that joy and self-control, that patience and that kindness that the scriptures speak about again and again. When we see even a little of that in our lives and in the lives of others. And we take heart. And we're encouraged. It's proof that faith is living. Living thanks to the work of Christ. And thanks to the work of the Spirit. And so, beloved, in these good works, there's benefit for God. There's benefit for ourselves. There's also benefit for the world. The Catechism puts it like this, that by our godly walk of life, we may win our neighbor for Christ. Notice here that good works are described as winning works. The connection is between works and winning, not between words and winning. Now, of course, one is entitled to say that works include words. But we all know what's meant here. The Catechism is here reminding us that words, words can often be easy and they can often be cheap. And that really what wins people over in the end to the gospel are the deeds. Great deeds cement good works. Godly walk confirms godly talk. And that's the stuff that wins over and attracts our neighbors for Christ. And remember that as you interact with your co-workers and your neighbors and your friends and acquaintances. Some believers hide their light under a bushel. Other believers specialize only in preaching at other people. Effective believers, however, are those who do more walking than talking. They show by their love and compassion, by their care and kindness, by their goodness and mercy, what it means to be in the vine. And all the while they pray. They pray for their neighbors and co-workers. They pray for openings, for opportunities, for the right moment to come along. And they pray for the right words. And for the Spirit to empower those words. You know, in some ways, this winning is like farming. It takes effort, cultivation, patience, wisdom, commitment, time, 
And it takes God. And in the end, God will bless it. For He alone is able to turn our good works into winning works. And so, beloved, why bother with thankfulness or with good works? Bother. Because it brings praise to God. Bother because it brings certainty into your faith life. And bother. Because it wins your neighbor for Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.